another episode of the acclaimed shark bites podcast acclaimed by who i don't know but someone's acclaimed it and uh i'm acclaiming it right now myself um it's been a while but i am back and uh we are now in the year 2023 and i am very excited for this week's guest because this week we have uh, a writer of a book that uh, just came out a couple of weeks ago uh the first of the year I was sent this book uh, late last year, but uh, a lot of you folks know what I had going on at the end of uh, last year, so it uh, didn't quite get done, and we didn't get this podcast scheduled till now, but I'm happy we did it. I'm, I very much enjoyed the book, but we'll get into that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I am joined by Mr. Mark Stevens, author of The Fireballer. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Oh, thank you. Thanks a million for having me. Oh, no, of course, of course. Um, I'm a huge fan of this book. Uh, I read it actually in one sitting. Uh, like I really, I, I had a tough time putting it down because it is not your typical baseball story. Um, I found that going through this, it is very much uh, a hero's journey, no different from, say, Luke Skywalker. Um, because you'll see a lot of the similar beats that go along, um, you know, kind of the hero loses his power for a while type of thing and has to overcome obstacles in order to uh, regain his full potential. And um, it's brilliantly written. So even if you're not a sports fan, if you're a fan of those types of stories, uh, I think you'll really enjoy this. So the first thing I need to ask, because you are you are from Massachusetts originally, and you currently live in Colorado. Why would you choose the Baltimore Orioles to be the focal point of this story? Well, it's a pretty straightforward answer. Uh, first of all, thanks for the kind words about... Um, a novel about the pitcher who is basically ruining the game who pitches so fast that the uh, issue of how a batter swings and whether a batter can get a bat around in time um, to write it, to write a story about that pitcher, he is coming out of college. He's going to be the number one draft pick without any question. And so I had a few different teams at the time I was writing it that were on the bottom of the uh, major leagues. And, um, I think the number one obvious choice to me anyway was the Baltimore Orioles because I like the fact that they don't get a lot of attention. Um, I like the fact that they're sort of an underdog team, at least the time I was writing it, they had a good year in 2022. Um, but, you know, I just felt like the character of Frank Ryder, my main character would sort of fit with Baltimore in the image. And I don't want to pretend like I can speak for Baltimore or what it is, I think it's a really cool, interesting town with a ton of history, obviously. Um, but like any other urban city, lots of urban cities, they've had their struggles and their issues. And uh, 
whether it's racial or social or economic. Um, I just love that classic old American League East team and the classic old American uh, East Coast city uh, combination. It just sort of, it seemed like a good fit to my writer brain. Yeah, and I think that um, <clears throat> it works well. You know, again, speaking of the, the hero's journey, one of the things the hero always has to do is compete with the big, bad, you know, villains, which in baseball, that's the Yankees. Um, and in this case, also throw in the Red Sox. I get it. Uh, you have to overcome these hurdles. Uh, and the hero obviously can't just do it on his own. He needs help from his friends, you know, obviously his teammates coming up. Um, one of the things I really liked, um, and again, you know, you, 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 you seem to have a familiarity with, you know, Baltimore and obviously you have a familiarity with Colorado and, and, and Boston uh, or the Boston area, I should say, but you seem to really be familiar from the opening chapter of the area surrounding Wrigley Field. Now, is that a place you've been multiple times or? Yes, it, it is an area I'm familiar with. I have been there multiple times. I've been to Wrigley Field um, for half a dozen games, maybe. Um, my folks uh, both grew up in Chicago. I, uh, I spent a lot of time in Chicago working there as a journalist um, in and out. I never was based there, but did a lot of stories there. Um, I I have a just an affinity for Chicago, I think, because of so many trips there with my folks to go visit grandparents for um, holidays and those kinds of things. And I did have a secret weapon that those opening scenes in particular, I had a friend who was a Chicago, not native, but he spent a lot of time there. And I did get a little help in the writing about some of the neighborhoods. So there's little touches. Uh, but yeah, I, I know I can name a few bars, bars like Sheffield's and the Cubby Bear. I've been there, seen some rock, rock shows at the Cubby Bear and uh, the Metro and um, just that whole environment is, you know, super special, obviously both. I think it's a magical area in Chicago and it's a magical area in baseball, sort of just that vibe. If you're, mm -hmm. if you're seeing a game at Wrigley Field or Fenway Park, there's an extra added special vibe that just goes back across the decades. And, you know, you can see the uh, legendary players, you know, Ernie Banks or, you know, whoever it is just walking onto the field, they're right there. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely one of those places where, you know, like I have a, a, a friend who has season tickets to Fenway. He just refers to it as the chapel. You know, yeah. there, there are a few of those. Camden Yards is another one. Um, yeah. Yep. You know, and I loved the fact that you, you know, always included the, uh, the, the, the buildings behind the outfield wall there. Um, I always thought that was, that was fun when I would, you know, whenever I would watch games that took place, you know, cause I followed, you know, Cal Ripken's streak back in the late night, or as the kids say in the late 1900s, which yeah. just <laughs> makes me feel old. Um, yeah. But, well, the cool thing about a, the cool thing about baseball parks, for the most part, is there's some connection to the city. Not always, but there's some sort of much more open feeling to the city. Whereas in a football mm -hmm. stadium, it's all sort of focused inward. Yeah. That baseball, that baseball park aspect can really bring the city right into the park. It's like seeing San Diego and Baltimore, Boston, on and on. Yeah, 
it, it's uh it's almost like it's a it's a resident of the city you know it's it's you know the old man with all the stories to tell you know that everybody yeah. comes to see and and gain their wisdom so yeah i can i mean i've been lucky enough to go to you know not a ton of games but you know i've i've been to a few um and it's always it's always a great time no matter no matter what um no matter where you're sitting i mean it's it can be cramped um but yeah there's nothing like being at a live sporting event you know uh and for folks who are listening if you haven't gone you know, it's hard to articulate what that feeling is, you know, when something good happens and you've got all these people around you, like all of a sudden you are one cohesive unit, you know, um, even though you've never seen these people before and probably never will again. Um, yep. And I think that's that's definitely something that you were able to capture in your book. Like you clearly have a love of the game, a love of the way it's played. Um one of the biggest, and, and I don't want to get into any spoiler territory, um, so I'm going to make sure I kind of tiptoe around certain things because we don't want to give anything away because you uh, you build up to a crescendo uh, around the middle of the book, so I don't want to give any of that away. But uh, some of the unwritten rules of baseball, like there's a lot of talk about them a lot of controversy around it um you know it's something that everybody knows exists but you know there's no one really talks about it like the uh, there was a, a couple of nba referees that got fired a few years back because you know someone asked them like was that a makeup call did you did you call this because you would call that oh yeah that was definitely a makeup call and it's like everybody knows it but you can't talk about it um when you were, when you were, uh, you know, researching your book and getting this idea and like kind of like putting everything together, were there other unwritten rules that you were thinking of other than the one that you ended up incorporating? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the unwritten rules of baseball, as um, Tim Kirchin, the great uh, commentator on Baseball Tonight podcast, who I, I follow. Um, quite closely. He says, you know, it's an awfully big book. Um, I, I think there's, there are some, um, you know, deep, there's some deep thinkers about baseball who know those things inside and out. And to answer your question, I really just focused on the one that I brought into the book. Um, there is, there are just, I, I mean, I think that's sort of one thing that makes it kind of interesting um, to watch baseball is there's the, the obvious game you're following the hits, the strikeouts, the home runs, the triples, the stolen bases, whatever. But then there's just seems like there's all this code within the game. There's these looks, these little, um, you know, um, don't flip your back glances. Don't stare at the pitcher. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And things like, you know, if you don't uh, show off on a home run trot and, um, I think but the it's other okay for sort the pitcher of, to pump his fist when he strikes you out, yeah, what's up with that? Why is that okay? Yeah. Um, it's interesting, the last few years, I think baseball has been dominated by, uh, yet again, another cheating scandal. There's just a lot of talk about that. And um, obviously, there were repercussions and consequences for those who were involved with the cheating scandal. And um, 
yet, you know, those are the ones who get caught. And one of the biggest unwritten rules in baseball um, is apparently keep cheating until you do get caught. And that's, you're obligated to, to try to figure out a way to read signs from a catcher or um, you know, do what you can. can. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's the mean, old adage? If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. That's, that's exactly it. So that's, I didn't really get into that too much in this book. I really mm. just focused on the one, which is to me a sort of barbaric uh, bit of business, uh, which, uh, you know, it gets ugly out there at times when, when, um, and I guess we don't want to get into too many spoilers, but when, when we know that somebody is going to get thrown at, that is, that's a weird business, I think. Yeah. And it's, you know, especially where it's like, you know, there was a, I don't know if you remember, um, and you probably do, you know, being a, a scholar of the game where Pedro Martinez threw at Kareem Garcia and Kareem Garcia got so upset. He was a, a, a you know, one of the schlubs for the Yankees on that, on, on those like great, like early 2000s teams that were just so dominant. And he was like some guy and he got so mad. And Pedro's response to him was like, so what I threw at you? Who are you? Like you're yeah. Kareem Garcia. You know, it's not like yeah. it was Jason Giambi or David Justice or one of these guys that had right. proven themselves. It's like, who are you? Yeah. Um, Sit down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just take Come your back to the dugout. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So with this, um, when I started reading this book, one of the things that I was concerned with is like how is this going to be interesting just right you know reading about somebody playing a baseball game like this pitcher and and you started incorporating so much other stuff the minutiae and the politics behind the scenes so you know frank comes up and frank's throwing 110 miles an hour and you have no chance to swing at this so then all of a sudden you have all these potential rules that are you know the the owners are meeting with the commissioner and it's like well what are we gonna are we gonna raise the mound are we gonna move it back are we gonna tell you that you have to scale it back you can't throw this fast or else it's gonna be a ball and it's like i know this is fiction because from what we've seen with baseball so many uh, decision makers in the game are hardline purists who don't want to make any changes, even if it's for the benefit of the game, because that's the the driving force that we hear. It's like, well, it's like, yeah, he's a, he's a phenomenon now and people are going to go to his games, but after a while, everyone's going to know the outcome. Like what's the point of even showing up? It's like, well, to see the spectacle, I guess, but you know, if something like this were to happen, how quickly do you think baseball would move to make a decision or make a change on this? I think they move pretty quickly and they're showing their ability to, you know, try to adapt right now heading into the 2023 season we're seeing lots of changes uh, we're seeing they're banning defensive shifts uh because they want to give the Finally. offense more of a chance 
they're they're increasing the size of the base. So base stealers, potential base stealers, have a bigger landing zone to land on um, and bigger place to grab. Um, they're reducing the number of times a pitcher can throw over to first base, which um, is kind of an interesting tinkering around the edges of the game, but they're trying mm. to get more juice, more action in the in the game itself. And I think right now they're very uh, scared about pitcher dominance. And they think the pitcher dominance right now is creating a product that is not as appealing to people who want to come out and see action, which means balls in the air, uh, home runs, triples, doubles, and uh, lots of base runners. Um, so I think they would react pretty quickly if a guy, you know, if, obviously my guy is sort of looking around the corner and head in the, in the sport and he is an outlier. Yeah. He's just one, but we, you know, we see these waves of pitchers coming who are comfortably throwing a hundred, 102 throwing sliders at a hundred miles an hour, um, not just fastballs. And so it's happening. They are watching right now. And with all these um, batting averages, just continuing to slump and um, you know, the whole issue of just too many strikeouts, too many uh, empty trips to the plate. I think that they would uh, they'd find a way to combat it. So, that being said, what do you think the solution would be? Is it something that you brought up in your book, or is there maybe something that you thought about but didn't include? Because uh, I think I, I think I'm with you. I'm thinking maybe they move the mound back a little bit. Well, I, I, I prefer to have folks read the book and, and realize uh, some of the, my main character's choices in the end in terms of that issue, because I think he makes a pretty compelling speech toward the end about, you know, if in fact they were to say you can't throw over a certain speed, and that would be a ball if you happen to inadvertently throw above 105 miles an hour or something, that that would be the first sport in the history of American sports anyway to kind of limit the potential of an athlete to do what, what they are trained and have been training to do. Um, so I think he makes a pretty compelling point on that score. So what is the, what is the counter? Well, after Bob Gibson had his, what was it? 1.13 ERA season in 1968, I think he had 13 shutouts and some incredible number of complete games with the numbers you can't even imagine. Well, they lowered the mound in order to, um, try to give the batters a, a chance. Um, so they did react to one pitcher back back then. And if we see some one pitcher or two pitchers get up, who knows what they'll do. I think that they would probably look at um, maybe moving the mound back a little bit. I don't know. It, it would be a huge discussion, though, huge. Oh, yeah. And it would be, you know, no one would be happy. Nobody would no be happy would, no yeah. matter what no. they did. No. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting because as I'm reading this and I don't, I don't know if these were at all uh, influential in any of your, uh, your writings, but uh, are you familiar at all with the movie uh, rookie of the year? I've seen it. It's been a while. Um, Cause all I could think of was like, I, I thought about this kid, Henry Rowan Gardner, who, you know, breaks his arm and the tendons heal like super tight and he can yeah. throw 103 miles an hour, you know? 
you know, and it's like, oh, all right, you know, that's kind of, but obviously you and I are of a different uh, age range and generation. So that probably would not have been, um, you know, an influence for you, but like, I'm just, you know, picking things. Right. It's like, oh yeah, this kind of reminds yeah. me of this. This kind of reminds yeah, yeah. me of that. Yeah. Um, one of the things I did like um, is you used, um, you didn't just focus on, you know, the players, the manager, like, you know, you had the GMs and the scouts and like all these different people that were involved with this. So based on the converse, I kind of got ahead of myself. I wanted to ask a different question first. Uh, how close do you think we are to seeing something like Frank Ryder's ability? I think we're pretty close. Uh, go go to YouTube and pull up, uh, you know, Araldus Chapman. It's been a few years since he threw as fast as he was. Um, there's a guy with the St. Louis Cardinals, Jordan Hicks, I believe his name was, who in a game, there's a video online of him throwing 105, and the shot cuts and, and goes to the St. Louis Cardinals dugout. His teammates are basically laughing because they are so happy they're not the batter standing in the box facing that because it is just ridiculous at 105 you have 0.3 seconds to decide whether to swing to decide where to swing how to swing another the, the, the even even at 100 miles an hour that that it, it's a little over 0 0.3 0 0.4 seconds that first 0.25 seconds is all the decision making about whether you're going to swing or not that's that's the increment of time you have to analyze that streaking white object coming your way. You have to read whether it's something in the zone, potentially, whether it's something hittable, even if it is in the zone. You have to determine curveball, slider, fastball, um, knuckleball, changeup. Um, it is a mountain of athletic processing that's going on inside a guy's head. So I think we're... You know, if we see if you know half a dozen or ten pitchers who are comfortably throwing 105, 106, 107, we're we're right there. We are on the cusp, and I maybe it's a few years off. Nobody thought in in the nineties we'd be talking about guys at 105, 106. So here we are in twenty twenty three. It could be thirty thirty. I mean twenty 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 thirty three when <laughs> we're when we're dealing with this, but that's only a decade off. Yeah, and it's. You know, I mean, even if you just take a look at, you know, the way athletes look now compared to, you know, what they were 20 years ago, you know, like imagine if, you know, a guy like, say, Ken Griffey Jr. was coming up the system now, you know, with the nutrition and the, you know, the, the amount of, you know, travel teams and, you know, the medical advancements, you know, it used to be. You know, I mean, there's a reason it's called Tommy John surgery like that used to, you know, be the end of your career, you know, a torn ACL. Oh, he tore his ACL. Yeah, he's out for the rest of the year. He'll be ready for training camp like that used to be a career ender. Not only that, look at the size of some of the guys, you know, you see these pitchers that are, you know, I mean, obviously, Randy Johnson was a guy who was an outlier, but, you know, you know, six 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 seven like that's that's normal 
Like, yeah, you'll have two or three guys that are that tall, like yeah. whipping the yep. ball. So it's like, yeah, we lowered the mound, but now these guys are getting taller to compensate for it almost. Um, you know, I think Agreed. it's one of those, it's one of those things where everything kind of has to evolve and change, you know, and you have to understand that what used to work, it's like, yeah, you know, the fences at Fenway are here and, you know, you know, this is where we have, you know, the way we build our ballparks, you know, ballparks are being built differently when the, like when the new Yankee stadium was built, there was that issue when it first opened where there was like this, almost like a rip, a rip current, uh, a riptide of uh, airflow in right field because of the way it was built. And all these balls that normally would just land harmlessly in the outfield were soaring over the fence because of a design flaw. So it's, they had to change the way that was built. And, you know, they're building the parks for uh, these new powerful pitch, uh, hitters. So I think it's it's something that the game should continue to evolve. Um, you know, let all the steroid guys into the into the Hall of Fame. Who cares? You know, <laughs> there was a speaking of uh, today was um, I can find it. Today was uh, ballot day for the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. Did you happen yeah. to uh, catch that? Yes, I did. The third baseman, um, you know, he got in. Um, I'm trying to pull up his Roland. name in my head. Roland. Yeah, Scott Roland. Uh, uh, I, 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 oh, yeah. Yep. I was sort of sad to see Andrew Jones not do as well. Um, if you look at his numbers over the years, and I don't know if he's tainted by the steroid era or I don't know the inside story on that, but I think that guy's numbers are insane. So I maybe he'll be in there next year, but um he's a guy i thought was going to get in um i always like he he spent most of his career with the braves and then ended up with the yankees towards the end of it uh which seemed to happen a lot (laughs) with the the guy spends 20 years with it one team and then moves over and finishes with the yankees yeah um one of the other things i i really liked was um you kind of mixed in real baseball figures with almost like proxy characters. You know, like when you're talking about the owner's meetings, like that was clearly not John Henry sitting in for the Red Sox. Um, But you mentioned guys like Trout and Altuve, you know, stuff like that. Um, What made you, and, you know, even some of the the players on, you know, on uh, Frank's team, what made you decide to go with, um, you know, like proxy characters as opposed to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when I first wrote the book, I actually had a lot more real characters in the scenes. Um, and my agent, who is a very astute agent, made the point that by the time you sell a book and get it published, which is a long process, some of those players would have moved on. So I might've had Chris Bryant at third base for the Cubs. Now mm-hmm. he's a Colorado Rocky, you know, And that that can be just jarring to a reader. So we kind of came up with a rule that anybody in actual live scenes wouldn't be now characters. There might be a reference to Mike Trout or Jose Altuve as existing players to compare to, you know, compare to. 
people that are out there, but they're not in the now scenes. So if Frank's team is playing in Chicago, all those players' names are going to be made up. There might be a reference to a previous Cub, somebody who's retired, or there yeah. might be a reference to Babe Ruth, of course, or anything from history. And and then when it came to like mentioning announcers from ESPN or commentators like Jim Palmer on the Orioles broadcast, those are real people, but their chances of having changed their job or changed their organization, sure, they could no longer be with ESPN. They might have jumped over to CBS or something else, but there was less chance of volatility there. So, yeah, we came up with fictional names for the like when they play Tampa Bay, those are all fictional names, mm -hmm. you know, just um, it just, I didn't want the reader to get lost in case one of those players had retired, gotten traded, um, went into free agency and found another team, whatever it might be. That's so smart. that was why. Yeah. I was honestly expecting you to be like, well, I didn't want, you know, if somebody was painted in, a, in an unflattering light, I didn't want to get sued by, you know, John Henry or Brian Cashman. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's there, there's that too. And I, when it came to the owners' meetings, and I had made up names for all those owners. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to pretend like I was, you know, putting words in the mouth of Brian Cashman or um, any of the owners in particular. That was just to kind of model what I assumed the discussions in my imaginary yeah. writer's brain would be like. It so. seemed, it, you know, it almost felt like, you know, it's weird you know, listening to, you know, or reading, reading a, a, basically a committee meeting where like everyone's discussing rules and regulations. You'd think that's, that's, that's like, oh, this is going to be like the height of tedium, but it's like, it's actually pretty interesting, especially from someone who, you know, kind of follows baseball. And again, like the way you describe the different people uh, that you have fictionalized it's like, okay, like I can, I can see this guy, like he doesn't exist, but I can see him doing this and I can see him saying this on behalf of his organization, you know, regardless of what organization it is, especially when like you, you take like, you know, the guys in the big cities and the guys in the smaller markets and you kind of see how you, you sort of play these guys uh, off of each other and, I think that was very, very well done. Because um, like I said, you know, it's tough to, you know, like in any baseball movie, the focus isn't necessarily on the game itself. Yeah, there's, you know, some exciting stuff that happens. There's some great feats of athleticism. But there's also a lot of stuff that's going on behind the scenes. This is a real person with real hopes, dreams, aspirations, you know, wants, needs, etc., how does this person go about interacting with their environment? You know, the whole social media thing, that was brilliant. I really enjoyed that, you know, because it's one of those perception is reality, especially on social media. I really like the way you, uh, you worked with that. Uh, what's that bloodhound shirt? Oh, I'm in disguise. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that that was good. I liked that um, that whole aspect of the uh, of the story. Well, thanks. Like I said, I I really enjoyed this, and you know, going through it, there was um, 
a lot that I wasn't sure how you were going to pull it off. Um, because I go into the, you know, I didn't really know much about it, you know, other than what's on the back. And I do appreciate you uh, signing it for me. Uh, I like Absolutely. that. Um, I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. And uh, like you really pulled it together. Uh, you have a, a, a good narrative like a very strong story and like you tell the story uh, exactly the way I think would, like I said earlier, hook a reader who isn't necessarily a baseball fan, you know? So even, you know, this just keeps bringing me back to the hero's journey thing. Like it's. Yeah. Well, my, my agent said when I first bounced the idea off him and he liked it a lot, uh, but he said, it cannot be only about baseball. It has to be about something else. You're just not going to sell a book that is 100% baseball. It has to involve a bigger story. And it has to be, you know, probably human. And um, in the case of the Fireballer, it, without again, without giving too much away, it ends up being as much about baseball as it is about mental health and dealing with trauma. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that that is that that developed as I started writing, right as I started writing it. And uh, I, I actually talked to my agent about the basic idea for the second half of the book. And he was completely on board and, uh, you know, gave me feedback at the halfway point And he gave me feedback after it was all done too. And that was our goal was to make sure that if we were just all in the clubhouse and all in the baseball field, we knew we didn't have something that would, would probably sell. So yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, it's like when you're, you know, watching a, a an animated show, you know, it's like, here's the A story. But what else is going on beside that? There's the B story. You have like an A story, a B story, a C story, a D story, but none of them is any less significant than the others. And every single one of them is tied to each other in a way that none of them could exist on their own and be as interesting as they are together as a whole. Like you really wove this together incredibly well. Well, I've never heard it quite that way. And I, of course I agree with you, but I've never really heard it put that way, which is very true. And I think that uh, one of the reasons they kind of work together is that the B story to use your term, which I like uh, and the A story actually are the same story. They are, the exact same thing that has brought him so much mental internal anguish and grief is the exact same thing, which is bringing him so much fame and so much attention and putting him in the spotlight of the national sports conversation. It is the exact same thing, throwing a baseball. And um, mm -hmm. again, not giving too much away, but that is what binds those two A and B stories. It's, it's kind of like, You'll understand what I'm saying, and folks who, who read the book will understand what I'm saying. You always hurt the ones you love the most. Yep. And, and I think that's exactly his relationship with baseball. Well put. Yep, exactly. So we're going to uh, wrap things up a little bit. I have uh, one last question for you. I Actually, no, I have two. I have two. Uh, the last one's going to be a fun one, though. Uh, not that these other ones haven't been fun. Yeah. You're having fun, right? No. Yeah. Um, 
but we'll get you know to you know where we can find the book your socials and all that stuff but um do you have any plans like this doesn't need a sequel i'm not asking about a sequel or anything like this but do you have any plans to write um other books do you have anything in the works maybe you know another baseball story or you know maybe another sport or nothing that has to do with sports to you know a totally different type of uh story altogether well just real quickly before writing this one i had five crime fiction novels out uh, all all in a mystery series um and i my agent has two standalone crime fiction novels that he has in the process of getting ready to market right now um so i'm a crime fiction guy that's how i consider myself for a long long time mysteries mysteries but this idea came along and i challenged myself to write a non-mystery and so far so good it seems to be doing pretty well um i am writing another non-crime fiction uh book now and it's set in the world of rock and roll which is another passion of mine so okay um, so far so good yeah and it's funny you should say that because uh, like I was telling you off air when I when I read it, I was actually working on a commercial and the studio where we were at had two, not one, two framed albums signed by the entirety of the Rolling Stones. Uh, very nice. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> it yeah. just, it just all tied together yeah. right there. Yeah, that's great. So right. Yeah. Yeah. Final final question here. Uh, who is your favorite baseball player? My favorite baseball player? Right now, the current um, guy that I think deserves all sorts of attention um, and it's just, you can't even begin to imagine what we're dealing with is Shohei Otani. We are seeing uh, a player that is off the charts. His, he would be, he is a star pitcher. He's just his numbers are as good as as they get. He's one of the top five pitchers in the major leagues, and he's one of the top three or four hitters in the major leagues. And to do both is unheard of. So any chance I get to see an Angels game and watch him play, and thinking about where he might end up after next year and the size contract he's probably facing a half billion dollar contract, his his average annual they're saying could be on the fifty to sixty million dollar range, and maybe he gets ten years. Um, I, I mean, I really think he is a masterful player. I love his attitude. I love his whole approach to the game. He's very, comes across as very genuine. Um, over the years, of course, I mean, the other favorite player, if I get to, I just always love watching Fred Lynn play mm -hmm. um, outfield for the Boston Red Sox. I think he was overlooked in terms of just his contribution. I loved his swing. I liked the way he played the game too. He's just a beautiful runner hitter you know his feeling was amazing just graceful so i i i can dig it i like that i have a lot of signed memorabilia around my room i do have uh it's not out on display because i don't have enough space for it but i do have a yeah. signed fred lynn jersey wow wow yeah. wow yeah i'm jealous i'm jealous <laughs> yeah that's great yeah um Oh, yeah, because, you know, obviously I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah, name one baseball player. Because, again, like we spoke about, there's a lot of yeah. uh, things that have changed. You know, my dad, Carl Yastrzemski, that was his guy. Like, just Yaz. And it's like, all right, I get it. I get it. So before we let you go, uh, first of all, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. 
this is the first podcast I've done in several months. Um, and this one, uh, I really enjoyed. This is reminds me why I, why I do this, why I, uh, you know, take on these, these, uh, the responsibility of reading books uh, from people that I don't know and like rewarding the faith that the, the, the publishers have in me, like, Hey, check out this book, have this person on your show. All right, cool. <laughs> um, so thank you. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, Thanks for reading it. Yeah. Oh, of course. Like I, I'm going to do a review on Amazon. I was talking with someone, a friend of mine who is a big reader. She doesn't, really get into sports stuff but i was you know giving her all the same points i'm like you like heroic fantasy that's what this is but instead of goblins there's yankees so yeah 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 um but uh you know again thank you and uh so where can folks uh where do you prefer folks buy the book where are you going to get the best royalty payments and uh where's uh, where can folks follow you on social media yeah, it does. The book is widely available. Um, I have a big fan of independent bookstores, of course, and would love if anybody would just go with their local independent bookstore and ask for it. That would be huge. It's available at that big uh, online bookstore that we all know so well, Amazon, and uh, doing quite well, I have to say. And I'm very proud of the reader reaction so far. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Writer Stevens. My Facebook is Writer Mark Stevens. Um, on Instagram, Mark 54 Stevens, uh, Twitter is, I still get a lot of baseball news and baseball chat on there. So that's a great way to connect, um, and appreciate all the support. And thank you again for the great conversation and for reading the book. I really, really appreciate it. Of course. Awesome. Uh, so I'll put all of those into the show notes. So you don't, folks don't have to write it down. You can just click on it and go right to it. That'll make it easier for everybody. And, uh, Mark, once again, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to give you a preview of what's going to be coming down the pipe for, uh, for Shark Bites. Deadly Grounds Coffee knows how important your coffee is to you. Every batch is roasted to perfection with a unique special method that brings out the richest, deepest, smoothest flavor you'll ever find. We're coffee freaks, too, and deadly serious about our brew. Just one sip and you'll know why we say, once you go deadly, you don't go back. It's truly coffee to die for. So when you're ready to get a little deadly, get online and order yours at getdeadly.com. It's coffee so good, it's scary. Hey, what's going on? I'm Steven. And I'm Ron. And we're the hosts of the Super Retro Throwback Reviews Audio Podcast. If you like to hear the latest pop culture news with some smart-ass commentary as well as the latest movie reviews, then check us out. Also, we're a multi-award-nominated podcast, so we're doing something right. God knows how that happened. So check us out on all major podcasts and distributors, and check out Super Retro Throwback Reviews on all social media platforms. I'm Matthew. I'm Jason. I'm Matteo. And we're Majemma. The creators of Bad CGI Sharks. And you're listening to the Shark Bites Podcast. You heard him? Slow ahead. Slow ahead. I can go slow ahead. Come on down and chump some of this shit.
need a bigger boat. Oh, folks, I got to tell you, it's good to be back. Uh, I'm very happy that uh, finally able to do this again. Um, I really missed it, and you can tell from the beginning of this episode that I was very, very rusty. A lot of gaps, a lot of pauses that uh, really shouldn't have been there. But I was still trying to collect my thoughts, still trying to figure out what I wanted to say, what I wanted to ask. Um, it was a, it was a, a good jumping off point because I was so familiar with how the book went and uh, Mark was very easy to talk to so this this was a good uh, a good uh, good way to get back back in the water so to speak um, over the next couple of weeks um, we're going to be seeing a lot more of these shows because there's a lot of stuff that uh, I'm doing that I think would be you know, interesting to talk about. We got some uh, collaborations with uh, Old Man Wade. He and I are going over some of our, our lists of what we called perfect movies. And uh, we kind of had a little bit of a debate about it. And then we decided that we were going to have um, uh, a collaboration. We're going to each uh, pick a handful of films that we thought uh, were perfect and in different genres. So for January, we went with action um, for February, we're going to be doing romance because, you know, February is the time of romance, apparently. And <clears throat> there's going to be a lot more uh, consistency going forward. Uh, Ashes and I have uh, come up with a plan for Throwdown Thursday. So you're going to be seeing more of that. I'm going to try and get on some of the other dorkening shows. I'm going to try and do some more, uh, some more live videos with... Uh, the YouTube channel kind of get some traction and some some eyeballs on that because there's a lot of stuff we got going on and you know I I feel like having a creative outlet is definitely going to be helpful for uh, not just me but for Ashes as well and you know we really enjoy doing this show and doing the show together so getting back to Throwdown Thursday is going to be good getting back to Shark Bites is nice. Um, so I'm, I'm happy about that. So that's what I've got coming up over the next couple of weeks. You're going to see uh, more interviews with writers. You're going to see more interviews with some uh, other filmmakers. Um, I'm going to be promoting a lot of stuff. There's a, a film festival that I'm helping judge coming up. That's, uh, that's coming up in May. Uh, I'm also going to be interviewing some you know, local folks with some other stuff that they've got going on. You know, just a whole lot of interviews, a whole lot of uh, discussions with our friends. And, you know, there's a couple of episodes from uh, some fellow podcasters, folks that you guys, uh, if you listen to this show, you're familiar with. Uh, stuff that we've been thinking about talking about for quite some time, and we're finally going to be able to do it. Uh, if you notice that I sound a little different uh, in the way that I am pronouncing certain words, especially any words with a TH or an F, uh, it's because uh, I have a broken tooth. My front tooth is uh, is cracked. It's actually uh, from, I think I was 13 maybe. Uh, no, maybe younger than that, 12. Yeah, this is 12, 13, somewhere in that range. I think I was in seventh grade, so 12, 13, somewhere in there. Um, a kid that I, I was in school with... Um, 
decided to come up behind me and uh, show what a tough guy he was by coming up from behind me and slamming my face into a table. And my tooth chipped, and uh, it took some time, but I finally got it fixed. Uh, and it, it stayed there for years. Uh, that piece broke off when I was in my early 20s. Got it fixed again. And uh, about a month ago, that piece broke again. So now I have this chip in the front of my t in my front tooth. So, you know, I'm trying not to smile too much because I'm kind of self-conscious about it. Ash just thinks it's cute, but I think it just needs to be fixed. My teeth are a mess anyways. I'm probably going to end up with a mouthful of dentures, but that's a problem for future Patsy. Uh, right now, present Patsy is not worried about that. I mean, he is, but future Patsy is going to be much more concerned with it. But I think with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, I will leave you with a shark fact, because I know it's been a while since you've had one of those. And uh, we have had our first shark attack of the year. Uh, a uh, young man was diving for mollusks. See, there's a speech impediment thing because of the broken tooth. Diving for mollusks, uh, you know, clams and octopus and whatnot, all kinds of little sea, sea creatures that he could uh, then sell because that was what his job is. Uh, and did so despite the fact that there were warnings of sharks in the area uh, because, you know, people have to earn a living and sometimes taking a day off is not an option no matter how dangerous your work uh, conditions might be, which is a terrible fucking thing. But be that as it may, he uh, decided to put his family first, knowing that he needed to help feed his family and, and continue to do his job. And uh, he was decapitated by a 19-foot shark, a great white. And uh, it's very unfortunate, but, uh, you know, if you don't go in the water where the sharks are, you won't get attacked by the sharks. You know, I know this guy didn't have a choice, but, uh, you know, maybe we we rethink how we treat some of our workers and, and whatnot. So uh, so that's going to wrap this up. And uh, just remember, folks, I may be the podcaster, but as my listener, you are my chum. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>